Years ago, I had a religious uh, conversation with a co-worker of mine. We were talking about people who quit following Christ. Uh, today, we might use the term falling away. Both of us were a little sad and a little frustrated by this reality. However, as we discussed more deeply, I found out that he believed that those who quote-unquote fell away were, in his opinion, obviously never saved to begin with. Because those who are in Christ, from his thinking, cannot fall away. And no one would be able to convince him or her otherwise. This was his belief. We might call this teaching, once saved, always saved. So I shared with him the thoughts concerning the possibility of Christians falling away because of their own choice to do so. So I challenged his once saved, always saved mentality. An overall theme of the book of Hebrews is the supremacy of Christ. It is to teach how better Christ is and everything that Christ has to offer. But it was an outreach to specific Jewish Christians who seemed to be contemplating leaving Christianity and going back into Judaism. It is a letter that proves that going back into worship of Judaism is to fall away from Christ. And that's the lesson today. Lessons from Hebrews. He is deity, who is Christ, or his background, who is Christ, and greater than angels. So the first point in lessons from Hebrews is background. Hebrews was not written to novice Christians. There are Christians who have been Christians, they are Christians who have been Christians a long time. Their beginning seemed to be at the time of the supernatural in the first century. These are Christians who have a Jewish cultural heritage. They have given up the old covenant and they have accepted Christ and his new covenant. Hebrews 2, 3-4 says, How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was also attested to us by those who heard. While God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles, and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. From this passage and the study of it, it seems like they were very aware of these miraculous times. However, for various possible reasons, including persecution and a laziness of faith, they are questioning their faith and Christ himself. This laziness of faith makes them vulnerable to falling away. Hebrews 5.12. About this we have much to say, and it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. That's the idea of laziness. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk 
not solid food. The danger these Christians face is the danger of falling away from Christ and his salvation. In fact, of the 305 verses in the book of Hebrews, over half of them are exhortation verses. Exhortation is that pushing somebody in a particular direction. And of course, if you're teaching about Christ, you're teaching them towards what Christ wants you to do in salvation. If you do not go in the right direction, you are in danger of being lost. Exhortation is actually another word that can be translated encouragement. To encourage somebody in the right direction. There are four major sections in the book of Hebrews. Four major sections of exhortations, I should say. The first one, don't drift away from God's word. Hebrews chapter 2, 1 through 4. The second one is, don't disbelieve God's word. Hebrews 3, verse 7 through chapter 4, verse 16. The third one is, do not have dullness toward God. Chapter 5, verse 11 through chapter 6, verse 20. And the other last exhortation, the major one, is keep drawing near to God. Hebrews 10, 19 through the end of chapter 13. Officially, the author of this letter is unknown, although those in the first century knew him. Chapter 13, verse 19 says, I urge you the more earnestly to do this in order that I may be restored to you the sooner. So there was a relationship between the author and the recipients. Chapter 13, 22 through 25, I appeal to you, brothers, bear with my word of exhortation. He's referring to the whole letter. For I have written to you briefly. You should know that your brother Timothy has been released, with whom I shall see you if he comes soon. Greet all your leaders and all the saints. Those who come from Italy sent you greetings. Grace be with all of you. So there is a connection there, isn't there? They know each other. In fact, if this letter were not accepted in the first century, it would not be used for us today. Traditionally, the author is believed to be Paul, and that's where I believe uh, it is correct. The recipients are believed to be a Jewish Christian congregation, perhaps in Jerusalem, and before the destruction of Jerusalem in A.D. 70. They are Christians very well versed in the references of the law of Moses, as when you look at the book of Hebrews, you're constantly dealing with understanding the law of Moses from our point of view, so that we can understand it, how they would have known it growing up as Jews. Yet there is a danger there is a danger of them going back to Judaism from Christianity. The second point is, who is Christ? And this is how it starts off. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, chapter 1, through the first part of chapter 2. The son spoke to people in the quote-unquote, last days. 
Now, the last days that this verse is referring to is the time under the law of Moses. That's the reference point that he's speaking of. This is when Jesus came to earth to speak the things of the Father. There have been many prophets before Jesus who spoke to people concerning God's ways, and they are special people. They might not have enjoyed being so special like Jonah, but I think their role was special nonetheless. But compared to Christ, even in verse 1 and verse 2, you already have a comparison. How do the prophets compare to the Son? Who's going to be the greater? Who's bringing the message that we need to listen to now? One big difference between the prophets and the Son is the prophets are not the Son. Surely, now that the Son has come, all people will listen to Him. I say that sarcastically, don't I? The following descriptions explains the Son better. Right down to verse 3. But in these last days He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He, that is God, appointed the heir of all things, through whom He also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. And He upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purifications for sins, we know who the Son is now, don't we? He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So let's quickly go down this list of who Jesus is as the Son and what God the Father has declared him to be that's so much different than all the prophets. He is the heir of all things. There is a connection between being the son and being an heir. The son shares ownership. Although we are not Christ, because of him, Jesus, and through him, we also inherit salvation. Chapter 1, verse 14. This is the blessing of being connected to the son or to God through the son. He is the creator, <clears throat> this son. God is the creator, we know that. And Jesus is God as much as the Father is God. John 1, 1 through 3 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and nothing that has been made has been made without Him. This Son radiates the glory of God. This is interesting. How do we understand this radiate, radiating from him? Well, John 1:14 says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the Son, uh, the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Does that mean Jesus was walking around in brilliant white clothes like in the transfiguration and we could not look upon him? Is that the glory? Is that the radiate, radiating factor that he's showing? No, there's something about his nature. There's something about who he is and how he acted, his physical life. 
that Bill brought up in the Lord's Supper that we need to get to know. He's the perfect likeness, chapter 1, verse 3, which your version might say an exact imprint. He is not a copy, though. He is not like a Xerox. He is the image. Jesus said to Philip, Have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? This is out of John chapter 14, verse 9. Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Again, Jesus is not talking about what he looked like in the transfiguration. He's talking about his nature. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. He is the sustainer of everything by the word of his power. And he cleanses sin. Now we're getting into a big factor of Hebrews. He cleanses sin. To do this, he needed to become human. That was in God's plan. That was part of their design. But if he were not also deity, and that's what chapter 1 really emphasizes, he could not cleanse our sins. Without him being deity also, he could not cleanse our sins. Now he's at the right hand of God. Which of the prophets are at the right hand of God? The Son is. The Son is the one we need to listen to. The Son is the one we need to follow. The Son who is deity. He is triumphant and his work is complete. Now, at least the work and the role of his perfect sacrifice in his nature of the high priest because he is the new high priest, is he not? To be the high priest, he needed to do what he, what he did. In this sense, the description shows there is no more work for him to do. Does he need to come back and crucify himself on the cross for our sins? Not at all. That's actually brought up later, isn't it, in Hebrews? No, he doesn't need to do that. He's at the right hand of God. His job is complete at least as far as the function of why he came here. This doesn't mean he is on vacation now. We pray in Christ's name. We talk to Christ. He is helping us. But in respect to what he needed to do for our salvation, he did it. And now he has ascended. And as Stephen said, I see him standing on the right hand of God. He's there. He's in heaven. So as God, who became man, he completed his sacrifice and is sitting down at the right hand of God. This job is complete. The Hebrew writer brings up the idea of angels. And this is specifically... As I'm learning more and more about this, uh, a big, big factor in the Jewish mind. As deity, Jesus has always been greater than the angels. Of course, when he's walking on earth, it didn't seem like a lot of people even believed he was Jesus the Messiah at all. 
but he's always been greater as deity. However, you may not realize how important angels were in the old covenant. They were not gods in the Jewish minds. They were not to be worshipped, but they had a function. Hebrews 2, verse 2, the first part says, For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable. He's talking about the old covenant, right? The old law, the law of Moses. Acts 7, 53. Or as Stephen said to the Jewish leaders, who, you are, who have received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Or as Paul said, the law was put into place through angels by an intermediary. Galatians 3.19. For those of us who think just in terms of Mount Sinai, Moses and the Ten Commandments, we may be surprised with how much the angels of God were used in that process. Do I know all the details? No, I don't. However, the Jewish people believed it, and the Word of God affirms it. The angels were a big part in bringing the law of Moses. Although the angels' role is interesting, especially in reference to the law of Moses, they cannot measure anywhere close to the equality with the divine. Jesus Christ. And this is how the writer will continue to make his case about Christ's superiority. Comparisons. Right off the bat, you got a comparison between the prophets and Jesus. Right off the bat, you got comparisons between what the angels did in bringing the law of Moses to now the Son who's greater than the angels in what he's going to bring or has brought. Which one of us mere humans are greater than an angel of God? At least in our form now. I'm not saying we are not special. God's Son died on the cross for all people. Yet most encounters with angels in Scripture left people pretty dumbfounded and speechless. What about the Son? He is divine. He was never an angel. He's always been God. He is God and He is superior to angels. In a sense, angels are like human prophets. Jesus is greater. His message is greater. Everything about Him is greater. Hebrews uses many messianic passages from the Old Testament. Hebrews 1 speaks to Christ's superiority as one who is divine. He is superior to all the angels. And again, Hebrews chapter 1, verse 6, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Jesus is shown to be the firstborn, or more accurately, his uniqueness is made clear. And the angels worship him. You don't worship the lesser, you worship the greater. 
or the greatest. Jesus is God. Not only do angels serve God, but God the Father calls the Messiah God. Hebrews chapter 1, 8 through 9. But of the Son, he that is God says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with oil of gladness beyond your companion. Whether it be the Hebrew language or the Greek language, the Hebrew says, God, your God, is Elohim, your Elohim. That's the same word that's used in Genesis 1.1, in the beginning God. In the Greek, it's theos, your theos. One of the strongest statements that Jesus is God. God calls him God. And God is eternal. But you are the same, and your years will have no end. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 12. I find what the Hebrew writer says at the end of his letter interesting. I appeal to you, brothers, bear with my word of exhortation, for I have written to you briefly. Thirteen chapters. I, Paul, wrote to you thirteen chapters, and that's brief. I wonder... Like John says at the end of his gospel, if everything was written down about what Jesus did, I imagine that the world would not be able to hold the books that you would write. But these have been written that you may know that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and believe. Well, Hebrews is written. He writes it briefly. Why is he writ written in such a way? so that we may know who Jesus is. Now, is this letter packed with thoughts and information and study opportunities? It is. It is packed in such a way that it would be exceedingly difficult to misunderstand its purpose. And the purpose is to teach about the superiority of Christ. How great is Christ? Well, let's look at his priesthood. Let's look at his covenant. Let's look at his sanctuary, heavenly sanctuary. Let's look at his sacrifice. Let's look at his mediation. Let's look at him being the son who is divine, greater than any prophets. Let's look at him and compare with the shadowy copy of the old law. Why would we leave him once we realize how great he is and go anywhere else? And if this letter just saved one or two in that small little Jewish congregation who may be thinking otherwise, how important is this letter for all of us even today? And that's the lesson. The lesson from Hebrews talking about his deity. We looked at his background, who is Christ, and that he is greater than angels. Well, folks, it's nice to see you here today.